Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. At this truth, the Bible says that we are saved by grace. This verse might not mean a huge amount to start. You might see the reference to grace in there. I will return back to this verse a little bit later, but just to whet our appetites. This is what it says towards the end of the Bible. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Um, Let's just pray together before we start. Lord, we thank you for your word that is living and active. Um, Lord, I just pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would make that word come alive in our hearts today. That we would learn something afresh, something new about the wonder of your grace for us. That we are saved by your grace and your grace alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to come back to that verse a little bit later, but I am going to spend a bit of time looking at Martin Luther and his own personal story. So the next slide we'll see a photo of him, or painting rather, that is Martin Luther. Um, you may have heard a bit about him over the last few weeks. I'm going to cover a bit of old ground, but repetition can sometimes be helpful. So Martin Luther, he was a very intelligent man. He was a lecturer at a university in a German town. Um, over 500 years ago now. He was very intelligent. He had a near-death experience one day at that point in his life. He was in a storm, and he was almost killed by lightning. And as is common, I think, when you have these near-death experiences, it brings right to the forefront of your mind these big things about what happens when I die, heaven, hell, what is life all about? And Luther had that experience. He wanted to absolutely make sure from that moment onwards that he was going to get to heaven. He was going to be absolutely devout in his pursuit of getting to heaven, and he was going to do everything that he could personally do to guarantee it. And he felt the best way for him to do that was to become a monk. So he decided from that point he was going to stop being a lecturer and he was going to become a monk, and he was going to give absolutely everything in his pursuit of getting to heaven by being a good monk. And he was incredibly devout in his lifestyle as a monk, so there are stories that he, in his confessional time, and remember the church then in Europe was the Roman Catholic Church, he would go to the confessional booth and he would confess for six or seven hours at a time for the sins that he had most recently committed. He was so determined to do the right things to get to heaven. He would exhaust even the very people he was confessing to. What's interesting, though, is Luther was doing this, and the more he did it you might think he would have an inner peace coming to him. The more he did these things, the closer he was to heaven, surely the better he would feel. Actually, it was the opposite. The more he did, actually, the more anxious he became that he wasn't doing enough. So if he got up in the night four times to pray, he was thinking, maybe I need to do five. If he was fasting for two days in a row, maybe I need to fast three. So Luther actually, despite doing all of the good things that a monk should do in getting himself to heaven, actually realised that it wasn't actually satisfying his need inwardly to know that salvation for sure. The good thing for Luther is that at this point in his, in his life, he was invited to go on a pilgrimage to Rome. If we put on the next slide. So this is um, some steps that are in Rome. I'll mention those in a moment. It was good news for Luther that he was able to go to Rome. 
because Rome had holy relics everywhere. It had holy sites everywhere. It still does. If you go to Rome, you can't really walk 10 yards without seeing some kind of church or cathedral or something that is considered sacred. And for Luther, that was an amazing opportunity. And when he got to Rome, he was manic in his pursuit of going to all of these places, touching all of the holy relics he could touch, praying in front of the things he was meant to pray in front of. And it's important we understand why he did it. And to know that, we need to understand a bit of what the Catholic Church was teaching at that time. The teaching was broadly like this. If you were incredibly righteous, and the Pope would be the most obvious example, you would go straight to heaven. If you were incredibly unrighteous, like, and you'd done something such as murder, you'd go straight to hell. But for everyone in between, which was most people, you would go, when you died, to a holding station called Purgatory, And at that point, the sins in your life would be purged from you. Hence the name purgatory. You'd be purged of the sins in your life that needed to be atoned for. It wasn't a pleasant experience. It was chastising. You would be punished to get rid of any sin that was still left in you, such that eventually you became clean enough to go to heaven. So that was the teaching. What was also in the teaching was then, well, if you've got all of this sin and you're going to purgatory, you don't want to be there for long. The good news is, the teaching went, that actually you can in this life slightly atone for some of that sin. You can make payment towards some of your sin so that when you get to purgatory, you've got less of it left over and a shorter amount of time in purgatory. How do you pay a little bit towards your sin? You go to all of these holy sites. You go to these relics. You do all the procedural things. And if you do more and more of that you will spend less and less time in purgatory and maybe, actually, you might even outweigh the good with the bad and get straight through to heaven. So that is why Luther and many pilgrims rushed around places like Rome back in that time, and actually some people still do, doing all of the things, the works, that they felt would help them get to heaven more quickly, perhaps even bypassing purgatory altogether. That's a modern-day photo. People still do this. What are they doing on these steps? These steps are a particularly significant part of Luther's story. They're called the Scala Sanctus Steps. Catholic teaching at the time said that these steps were the very steps that Jesus walked up when he went to confront and speak with Pilate before his trial, before his execution. So supposedly Jesus walked up those steps, then after he ascended and went to heaven, they were removed from Jerusalem and taken to Rome, and Luther had to get there. He was determined to get to heaven by his own works, and he thought, that is an incredibly holy sight. I need to go to those steps and I need to pilgrimage to those steps and maybe that will be enough to get me to heaven. And so what he did and what those people are doing, to climb those steps, you do it on your knees, you kiss every step as you go and you pray out the Lord's Prayer on every step. The thinking then being when you get to the top, such as the homage you have paid to those steps which Jesus supposedly walked on, that you have done enough to earn enough merits or enough indulgences, which is the other word used, to pay for that sin in your life so that your time in purgatory is shorter. Hopefully, you might not even go there at all. So Luther did that. He climbed those steps. And for him, this was the biggest opportunity he had to get to heaven. So you can imagine, he took this on with with relish. Luther, though, is honest enough when he gets to the top. He gets right to the top, and he's recorded as saying, who knows if it's true? He gets to the top, and he realizes, actually, who knows if all of this is true? 
And this brings us really, I think, neatly back to what John said in the first of our series on the Reformation, which is the Bible is the only authority to speak into these things. The Bible, I think, I can't remember the example John used it. The Bible doesn't tell you how to wire a plug, but the Bible tells you and is the only authentic truth on things like heaven and hell and God and creation and salvation. And Luther had, with many others, had been caught up in things that were not in the Bible about how to be saved. And he gets to the top of those steps and thinks, actually, who knows if it's true? So Luther went to Rome with loads of excitement, but he left actually quite disappointed. The next good news, though, for Luther is the next place he went to was Wittenberg, which, as a monk back then, this was a great place for Luther to be, because Wittenberg back then, like Rome, had loads and loads of holy relics. And as a monk with lots of time in his hand, it gave him an opportunity to earn up all of these merits, all of these indulgences, walking up the steps he wasn't sure had done it, but he's now got this place in Wittenberg, and he can spend his whole life doing all that a monk needed to do, doing the right things with the relics to potentially earn his salvation. So this was good news for Luther. The next slide tells, gives you a list. I won't read them all out. This is just to humour you, really. This was what was supposedly at this particular church in Wittenberg at the time. So, for example, there were apparently two pieces of hay that were next to Jesus' manger when he was born. There was apparently a bit of the robe of Jesus, a bit of the rope used to tie him. There was a bit of his beard, a bit of his cross... It's, it's crazy. It wasn't just to stuff about Jesus. The next slide, Toby. Mary, she had some stuff there as well, apparently. A piece of yarn that Mary spun was in this church. Four pieces of her hair. Five particles of her milk. It wasn't just Jesus and Mary, if you go to the next one. There were some other biblical characters there, apparently. Pieces of the rod of Moses. The rod of Aaron. One of my favourites, a piece of the burning bush seen by Moses. <laughs> supposedly there at this church in the 1500s. In total, the records had 5,005 holy relics in this church, which to the devout monk like Luther, that gave you a potential, someone's obviously worked this all out, if you did what you needed to do with each of those 5,005 relics, Luther or anyone else could earn 1.9 million days of indulgence. Basically, that means 1.9 million days off your time in purgatory. Okay, so people took this really seriously. The thing is, like before, Luther was doing all this stuff, and actually increasingly at this point in his life, he was realising that he wasn't having that sense of peace in his heart, that all of this was actually correct and earning his way towards heaven, earning his salvation. And so it's at this time in his life that he starts to think, and maybe he should have done this all along, what does the Bible actually say? So Luther, being an intelligent man, was able, with his understanding of the original languages of the biblical text, he was able to really understand what was it that the Bible actually said about the ways of salvation. And Luther later on went to kind of translate the Bible into the German language for people to be able to read for themselves. And he began to realise that actually all of this teaching, that he could earn his way to heaven through good works, through doing all of the things necessary, hopefully reducing his time in this place called purgatory, which isn't in the Bible, so don't bother trying to find it. He realised that the Bible said something completely different. And he began to, began to realise that. If you go to the next slide, Toby. Um, this wasn't the actual verse that Luther particularly had his groundbreaking moment of revelation. That was actually Romans chapter 1. But I think this verse, or these verses are clearly ones that speak of the same truth that 
Luther discovered as he went back to the, the Bible. And I think it'd be just good for us to read these together and then we'll, we'll move on from that. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Just look down those verses while I quickly grab some water. Um, my mouth is very dry. Just look at those verses. They're so familiar to us. Don't let them become too familiar. Just look through them again. This is the kind of stuff that Luther rediscovered for the church that had been buried and had been covered over. The bit that I put in bold is possibly the key thing to distinguish what Luther had been taught and what he discovered. That actually being saved was not by works that anyone could boast, but actually salvation was grace. It was a gift of God. And that was what Luther then started. Luther didn't actually get to the end of what we now see as the full understanding of the Reformation, but he was a catalyst. He was a very start, really. Oh, he's one of the, the, the start people in terms of that process. And he began to explain to people who would listen that actually salvation is a gift. It is not something we earn. If you go to the next slide, Toby, this guy was important at the time in Luther's story. So Luther is now in this p- period of his life where he's beginning to realise that actually salvation is not through what I do as a monk, what the Catholic Church had told me. Actually, the Bible tells me something completely different. This man is important in his story. This is a guy called Johann Tetzel, and he was a priest in the area in Germany, in Wittenberg, and he was going around collecting money for the church. Now, the teaching in the Catholic Church had kind of developed even further, and you can kind of see the way it happened, actually. The teaching, if you remember, was that if you could pilgrimage and go to these holy places and do the right things, that could help you shorten any time in purgatory before you are saved in heaven. But clearly, some people are unable to get to Rome. Some people are unable to get to Wittenberg, actually. So what would be quite practical would be, instead of that kind of sacrifice, just give us your money. Give us money, actually. Because actually, that is a sacrifice. Give some money, and that can help you towards heaven. So this guy, this phrase is brilliant, isn't it? When the coin of the coffer rings, the soul in purgatory springs. This guy would go around basically asking people, give us your money, and that will accelerate you through to heaven. And actually, if you want, it can be for someone else who's already died, who might be in purgatory now. So that was the kind of teaching that was going on. Luther later actually exposed a complete corruption of this. And actually, the real truth was the Vatican wanted some money to build some massive cathedrals, and they didn't have it. St. Peter's Basilica, it's an amazing place. It was paid for by this. It's quite incredible. But actually, that was what was going on. And this guy now hears Luther speaking a different message, and he doesn't like it because his livelihood is at risk. Who's going to keep giving money when people actually understand what the Bible says about your salvation? 
So Johann Tetzel and a few others, they summoned Luther to a hearing, and we've heard about that recently, that he was put in front of a hearing in the city called Worms in Germany, and was, Luther was told to recant what you've just been saying, but he wouldn't do it because he was bound by what Scripture had said. One thing, actually, the reason that verse is on the next slide, one thing it's just important just to highlight is that you might think from what I've said that the Catholic Church then and perhaps now just have somehow completely ignored the word grace and removed it from any Bible. That's not actually true. So if you go to a church back then, if you go to a Catholic church now, you'll still hear people say you're saved by grace, despite everything I've just been saying. So how does that work? Well, actually, the teaching that you would have heard back then in in that type of church was it is God's grace to give you salvation. It is his gift to give. But some people merit receiving that gift and other people don't. So it's a merited gift of salvation. And that will depend on what you've done. Okay? So if you, if you think that there is grace preached in some other of these Catholic churches, you're right. The teaching is that it's a gift of God to give. It is his right to choose who to give this gift to. Some people merit it and others don't. Now, you might think of an example like, let's say you went to university, I went to university. A university has a right to decide to give a degree to someone. No one's forcing them to. In any given year, they could decide, this year we're only going to give out one. This year we're going to give out 10,000 degrees. We're going to give a certificate as part of a ceremony, but we are going to give people the gift of being able to call themselves a graduate. It's our right to give this. Now, I could say, well, I've done the exams. I didn't get a perfect score, At least I've done something. So that person over there didn't even go to lectures. That person didn't even do the exams. So actually, yeah, I do recognise it's your gift that you're giving. I've got no right to have this degree, but if anyone's going to have it, well, at least I've done something to merit this gift. And that was a little bit like the teaching that was going on in the Catholic Church. So you do have this idea of grace. And yet Luther comes in and says, no, it's grace alone. And that's the point. It is grace alone. It's not grace with something else that we add. It's grace alone. And this, I mean, there's so many scriptures I could have chosen to kind of help explain that. This is from Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That verse doesn't say it was by his grace as a gift alone, but just studying that verse, you have to reach that conclusion. Because when you see what was it that was this gift of grace, it was a redemption in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as our atoning sacrifice. So actually, if you say this salvation is a gift of grace and something else, what you're saying is that stuff isn't enough on its own. So you have to get to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't the perfect sacrifice if you don't think it was grace alone. Luther revealed this scriptures and many others, and he was on a collision course, obviously, with the Catholic Church, and it all went from there, as we've heard already. So I want to just quickly recap what Luther revealed, and then I'm going to move on to something slightly different, in case you're slightly bored of the, the Luther history. Luther... His personal story and his own personal revelation took him from what he had been taught that you are saved by grace, but it's a merited gift, something you've at least partially contributed to receiving. He went from that misunderstanding of grace 
to the biblical understanding, the truth, that is, that it is a completely unmerited gift of grace. You are saved by grace alone. And that is only possible because God in his mercy said, I will pay in full the price for the sins of this world. That was the only way possible, and Luther saw that the Bible makes that clear. It is a completely unmerited gift of grace, and all we do is we receive it by faith, and that's it. So it's grace alone by faith alone. Next week, Hannah, I don't think she's here today, she's speaking on faith alone. It is a gift of grace alone. All we do is we receive it by faith. Now this, what I've said so far, maybe the Luther stuff might be new to many of us, I don't know. A lot of what I've said about grace being grace alone, I think is probably quite familiar to many of us. I would guess that if I asked you just to shout out words before it started, if I'd asked you to shout out the kind of spiritual words you hear most often spoken out at our church, um, I reckon the word grace would have come out very, very near the beginning. We hear about this a lot. So most of what I've said is probably not new. And if actually all of, if, all our, if our understanding is just what I've just said about grace, that in itself is enough to fuel our worship for God. But in the last few minutes that I've got left, I want to encourage us to search even deeper into his gift of grace and perhaps to see something maybe that we're less familiar with when we think of the grace of God. You might think, well, surely there's nothing else. That is rich enough. Um, Well, let's see. You might have heard a phrase. I've heard this phrase said loads recently in church. You're not just saved from something, you're saved for something. It's a phrase... I've heard lots, and it's great. You've not just been saved from something. It's not just grace alone has saved you from something. What have you been saved for? And that's what I want to look at next. What has this gift of grace saved you for? In our home group, group, we recently studied the book of Revelation. And a few weeks ago, we got to the last passage, uh, the last chapter. And actually, John Taylor here, he drew our attention to the very last sentence in the entirety of Scripture... And in case you don't know what it is, it's this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Now, I accept that that might have just been the Apostle John's way of signing off his letter, but it struck me nevertheless that you get right to the very end of Scripture and grace is there. You turn to every page in Scripture and it is a story of grace. From start to finish, the Bible is a story of grace. It is a story of his unmerited gift to his creation. That is what the Bible teaches from start to finish. You might have sung the hymn Amazing Grace, and maybe you wondered, what does it mean when he got to the line, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." What's the grace will lead me home bit? Where does this gift of grace lead to? Where is the end destination of all of this? What has God saved me for? Let's look again at those Ephesians 2 passages. I think when asking the question, what are you saved for? Most of us, quite understandably, and I'm not saying wrongly, would go straight to that bottom verse, verse 10. For we are created, sorry, for we are saved, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And it is true. When we are saved by his grace, we are saved to do mission, to relieve people from poverty. We are saved to do those things. 
But I want to draw our attention actually just to a few verses higher up the page. Verses 6 and 7. So we are saved, and then it says, And God raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see where it's pointing? We have been saved by grace, and in that we are caught up with him in the heavenly places, in order that what? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Do you know, you are saved primarily to be an advertisement to God one day of his amazing grace. We are going to be, if you're saved, a banner proclaiming as loud as can be possible his amazing grace. You are saved for his glory. You are saved for his glory and for his name. Do you know what the Bible says? It gives actually quite a lot of description about what the coming ages look like, about that day when Jesus comes back. I'm just going to give you a flavour, but you, you need to look at it yourself. The Bible tells us what that day will look like. It is a day when we are going to see the full outworking of his salvation plan. There is going to be a multitude of his children, a multitude from every single nation, every tribe, every tongue throughout history. There is going to be a number of people that you cannot count. And they are going to be singing to him, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And there are going to be angels joining in with that song. And there are going to be creatures in that song as well. And that song is going to go on forever. And you're going to be bowing down before him. You're going to be throwing your crowns at his feet. This is all in the Bible. This is what this day looks like. We're going to be a part of that. God says he will come and dwell with his people on that day and they will dwell with him, just like in the Garden of Eden. It is a song that will never end. You know, the Bible says that day will have no pain, no suffering, no anxiety, no consequence of sin, no impact of any sin will be left. It is perfect. God has saved you for that day and you are going to be there. And if we're able to stop singing worship to him, Maybe we'll look around and think, God has saved me for this. How rich is his grace? He has saved me for this. He saved me from that. And he saved me for this. Wow, his grace is amazing. It's so undeserved. It's so unmerited. We haven't done anything to deserve this. And that's what he saved us for. Those Ephesians verses we looked at, they are jam-packed with thick theology and some of us find it easier actually kind of to understand things with pictures and images and hopefully the Bible does give us both. I mentioned that verse that John drew our attention to in our small group right at the end of scripture about God's grace. Have you noticed that in the Bible, the very third chapter of the Bible, so the third chapter in Genesis, reveals the destruction caused by sin? The final three chapters in the whole of Scripture reveal God's final fulfilment of his salvation plan, the complete eradication of sin. I love the Bible and the way it does that. Look at those final three chapters and you'll get a taste of what God is saving you for. Here's just one of them. I think it's on the next slide, Toby. Yeah. Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You don't need to give your money to Johann Tetzel. You don't need to give your money to the Catholic Church. You don't need to give your money to Beacon Church to be saved. 
the payment has been paid in full. You can come and drink from that water of life, and that's what God promises. And you know what's interesting about this? He says, I am making all things new. He doesn't say, we are making all things new. He doesn't say, I am doing most of it and you do your little bit. No, God is the author of this. He is the one that does it all. He is the only one who has authority to speak to dead things and say, come alive. He's the only one that can. It is his gift of grace to us. And he says, it is done. And in case it's not obvious enough, where's my Bible gone? Oh, it's over here. Um, I hope it's obvious already from what I've been saying. This book, you need to read the whole book. You need to, every single page from start to finish is a story of his grace, of his redemption for people who rejected him. Read it from start to finish. Get to the end, read it right to the end, and you'll get a full understanding, the full extent of his immeasurable grace. Read it all. Digest it all. It is an amazing book where God has revealed his fullness of grace. There's one verse in one of these pages that says, God has reconciled all things to himself in Christ. Actually, every other page pretty much says the same thing, just in different ways. He is redeeming all things to himself through Christ. It's his amazing grace for us. I hope that fuels your worship for him. One day we're going to be part of that song. For now, we can only really imagine what it's like. But I hope you're stirred to worship a God whose grace for you is unmerited and has saved you from something and has saved you for something incredible. That's what God has done. That's his amazing grace for us. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.